Good morning. Shouldn't be a surprise where I'll be headed. We're back in Zechariah again. You can go ahead and turn there. Remember last week we had done a survey of Zechariah, and I'd taken you some of the sections of the book, and we had we'd asked ourselves at the beginning, what would we be missing if uh, Zechariah was pulled right out of our Bibles? What doctrines, what scriptural teaching would be lacking if that book just vanished? Because we have had to be honest with ourselves, it's not a book, the minor prophets are not books that we, our Bibles fall open on their own to. It's just, sometimes the, the language is too symbolic, too obscure, we're not really sure when they're talking about, are they talking about back then, or when maybe when Jesus comes, or some, you know, at the end of time. And it's tempting to just skip over books like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Zechariah, all together, because they just don't seem like they really have that much to do with us. So our Bibles fall open to Psalms, or to Ephesians, or maybe to Genesis, books that are easier to understand, that seem more directly applicable to us, but shame on us, really. And I'm not just saying to you, because I hadn't read Zechariah in years before I read it in preparation for these lessons. It's a very important book. There's some critical biblical doctrines that God wants us to sink our teeth into and to understand. And they do apply to us, as we'll see. And we saw it last week to some degree. I think the theme verses might be, I'm not 100% sure, Chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. The speaker there has to be the Messiah because he says, I will live among you. The Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And we looked last week at the theme that runs throughout the entire book of the Messiah and the descriptions of the Messiah that are really brought forth in beautiful language, very clear descriptions of our Lord Jesus. And remember, we saw last week on Easter Sunday the many references that the Gospels pull out of Zechariah to apply to Jesus, talking about the shepherd being struck and the the flock scattered, and some of the others about being bought for 30 pieces of silver. And we looked, as we introduced Zechariah, that the people of that day were not a people of action, They weren't focused on what God wanted. They were focused on themselves, on just getting by, rebuilding their lives now that they had uh, come back to the promised land. And they really weren't interested in rebuilding the temple. The foundation had been laid, but they hadn't really done much more other than that. And as Zechariah came on the scene, God used him to spur on the people to start building the temple again in 520 B.C. And he encouraged them as they built for five years with messages and visions that God had given him. 
and he showed the people a vision, a, a big picture of what God had intended for them. His plans for his chosen people Israel. That's what encouraged them. And he presents the Messiah and Zechariah as the true leader of Israel who one day will come to protect his chosen people from their enemies, to cleanse their sins and restore them to God, and then to reign over the entire earth. And it was very encouraging to me, I hope it was to you as well, in the brief time we had last week, to see that portrait of Jesus Christ from a book, that a source that we're not often looking at, perhaps. And I wanted to look at two of those passages just to encourage and remind you again. Look at Zechariah 6. Two hugely important concepts about Jesus Christ taught here. Here and then the next passage we'll look at. And then we'll go to our main theme for today, which is God's future plans for Israel. But look at chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two, meaning harmony between the offices of priest and king, which had been completely separate before. And now God is saying, This Messiah, this true leader of Israel, will come and he will be both a prophet and a king, a priest and a king. In other passages of the Bible, we learn that he'll be a prophet. And so the familiar phrase prophet, priest, and king is a good description, a unique description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then also look at chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. This is immediately after God in the future, after he promises that God will one day rescue his people. He'll protect them from the enemies that want to squish them off of the face of the earth. And at that day, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him, as one grieves for a firstborn son. It goes on to say, to describe the great weeping that there will be in the nation. And that weeping is because the people of Israel who have rejected Jesus for so long, thousands of years up till now, who knows how many years until this occurs. But those people who said, that's not our Messiah, That man we killed, he didn't really raise to life. He was a charlatan. He was a vagabond teacher. This whole Christianity thing is a bunch of nonsense. Most Jews that you talk to today will have a view like that. They don't think much of Jesus Christ. I don't want to say across the board because there are some Jews that thankfully have put their faith in Jesus Christ and trusted him as their Messiah and their Savior. But many Jews today have no use for Jesus Christ. He's not their Christ. He's not their Messiah, they say. But this verse and others say that one day 
they will mourn, they will grieve, they will finally realize Jesus Christ, the one who came to protect them when no one else would, that great Lord and Savior is their Messiah. And they will finally come to recognize that. And we'll look at that a little bit more today. So I hope that that portrait of Jesus Christ was encouraging to you. I hope that that served to refresh your heart on Easter Sunday. And I hope that you look at a book like Zechariah and say, wow, there is depth there. There is truth. There is food for my soul. And we're going to look today at God's future plans for Israel. Because in Zechariah, the Lord wanted to encourage his chosen people. He wanted to portray the Messiah. But he also wanted to show them a bright future when they would not be trampled on by the nations, not be persecuted, but they would be honored. They would be lifted up and they would be, once again, God's special chosen people who are the spiritual leaders of the entire world. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant, God would remain faithful to them and he would enact a new covenant. You may be familiar with that, you may not. I don't have the time today to go through all the details of the new covenant, but we'll look at a little bit of it. The point is that God would not abandon his people permanently. He's not that type of God. He doesn't let his promises go unfulfilled. He doesn't let the people that he loves die forgotten. He is faithful to his promises. And his timetable is not always our timetable. In fact, to be honest, it's not usually our timetable. But he knows everything. He has all power. And he is completely good, completely love, and completely faithful to his promises. That's the one thing I wish that you'll get out of today, to see the faithfulness of our great God. But at times, if you were a Jew throughout history, you could possibly have, you could understand why they would have uh, thought that God had abandoned them. I mean, think, back in 170 years before Christ, Antiochus Epiphanes greatly persecuted the people of God, tried to, to, to exterminate the worship of the true Lord. And then, of course, the Romans ruled over Israel and put down rebellions with brute force. Then the Holocaust. And even in, in the 20th century and 21st, the various Arab nations that would love nothing better than to see Israel wiped off of the globe. So they can have that land. Israel's never been a popular people. The Jews have never been someone that everyone flocked to, and everybody respected, and everybody loved. But... Despite these hard times, despite the, the persecution, the trials, they still have not accepted Jesus Christ, as we've said. And so, the, the question you might ask is, well, is God really, I mean, is he really going to do anything with these people? I mean, look how stubborn, look how they've rejected the Messiah. They just seem to have the worst luck. Are we, are we really sure that God's still working with his people, or that he will work with them in the future? I was going to read for you a few verses from Romans 11. You don't need to turn there. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people 
whom he foreknew. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. Meaning that Israel tried to keep the law as best as they could, but eventually Christ came and fulfilled the law and said, now you're under grace, not under the law. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, of you know, almost the drugged haze of someone who doesn't know what's going on. Eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. So Paul is saying, even the fog that hangs over Jews today, where they just can't see Jesus as their Messiah, even that's part of God's punishment on them. But despite that punishment, he's not rejecting them. He's not done with his people Israel. Because one day, the Lord will overcome those stubborn, blinded hearts. And I'll read again from Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. Ezekiel says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees And be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. A refrain that sounds over and over again, even in Zechariah. You will be my people. I will be your God. Because right now Israel is very far from where God wants them to be. But the great message that Zechariah had for the people then is that God is not done with you. He's not. He has great plans that he's going to fulfill. And we see that Zechariah gave some fantastic promises to the people of Israel at that time. The people who are listening to the messages. Maybe I can can just picture the people are finally getting getting on God's plan, getting on God's timetable, and they're building that temple. Remember, it took them five years. And I can just see Zechariah going around and preaching And giving these promises to the people as they're building. Hey, remember, God has plans for you. Remember, look at these promises that God gave me to give to you. Be rejoiced. It it says, strengthen your hands for the work a couple times in Zechariah. So let's look at some of those promises. They're all in the second half of your book. Let's start with uh, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I believe we read these verses last week. Zechariah says, Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and their children will survive, and they will return. And I will bring them back from Egypt, and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon, and there will not be room enough for them. And God promised his people of Israel that one day in the future, they will be brought back from where they are, scattered across the globe, even today in 2010, and they will have an expansive land of their own. Uh, that phrase, Gilead to Lebanon, it's, uh, it's a symbol, it's a picture. From Gilead to Lebanon, 
Israel's land was never that large. But God's saying, I'm going to expand your borders. I'm going to bring in all the Jews from around the world and let them live in the promised land once again. Uh, Look at chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with his cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This longer lifespan that God promises to not just the Jews, but to everyone living at that time period, everyone who's obedient to God, those longer lifespans equal more children. And if you remember, during the tribulation, most of the world's population will die in those seven brutal years. But in the thousand years, the millennium that will, that will follow, the earth will be repopulated because people will be so fruitful, so God will bless them, they will have longer lifespans that they will repopulate the earth. A wonderful promise to the Jews who always treasured having kids. That was one of the greatest blessings, if not the greatest blessing, for a Hebrew family was to have a good lineage of children to carry on their family line. Look a few verses later in chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. Many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the edge of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. The Jews will be spiritual leaders. The whole world will understand how blessed they are. And Jesus Christ is ruling from Jerusalem. And when people from a nation come to worship God, they'll come to Israel and they'll take a Jew and say, please, take us up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Take us up to worship God. We know you're blessed. We know you're kind of his representative right now. So take us up to worship Jesus Christ at the temple. Wonderful privileges to be a Jew at that time. Then look in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 5 and then verses 8 and 9. Chapter 12, 5 says, Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. And then verses 8 and 9 say, On that day the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David, the great warrior king of Israel's history. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. God is going to give physical salvation to his people from their enemies. He will not let anyone harm them. He will give them a protection that is just unmatched by any missile shield or national military or air force. He will be their true protection. If you know Israel today, you know that their military is pound for pound probably the best in the world. But even that will not be able to protect them when 
all the nations gather against Israel to annihilate them. It will have to be their God who protects them. Then look at chapter 13, verse 1. This goes back to what we had said earlier. It says that a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. A fountain, probably symbolic language there, of God's blessing of the gospel going out and cleansing and purifying these people as they come to believe in Jesus Christ. As we saw in Ezekiel 36, as the Holy Spirit lives in their hearts, turns them from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Then look in chapter 14. We'll spend the rest of our time there, at least insofar as we look up some of these wonderful promises. Chapter 14, uh, verses 6 through 8. or Actually, more verses 7 and 8 and then 10. It will be a unique day, without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. The whole land from, and then it names different places, and it says that Jerusalem will be raised up. The very landscape of Israel will be changed. We also know that there will be a huge earthquake that is going to change the topography of this nation completely. And I, one commentator said, it will be like Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, which is already on a hill. That's why in the, in the Bible, when you read, let's go up to Jerusalem, they really meant up to Jerusalem. But in this day, according to what the landscape changes that are being described here, Israel or Jerusalem, God's holy city that has the temple and has the center of God's government and the worship of Jesus Christ, it will stand up. Lena, hold up your hand. It'll stand, you're one with your ring on it, sorry. It'll stand up like a solitaire diamond pokes up above everything else. That's how this commentator described it. Jerusalem, as the, as the landscape changes, will be pushed up even higher so that people from miles and miles around can see it and can say, that's where Jesus Christ rules. That's where the temple is. That's where those memorial sacrifices occur. That's where God rules. And these changes, the water that flows out will, will make the whole nation very fertile. There will be blessings that have never been in Israel's history before. Remember when God called it the land of milk and honey? Imagine how fruitful it will be in that day when he is there ruling and he changes the landscape to benefit his people, his chosen people, Israel. Then look at verse 21 of that chapter. Verse 21 It says, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Meaning there will no longer be a rebellious, idolatrous person will not be allowed to worship God. Jesus will have complete reign over the entire earth. And I wanted you to see that there will be a house of the Lord Almighty. We discussed that a little bit last week, but Ezekiel 40 through 48 is very clear. 
it describes a new temple being built. And we saw earlier last week that Zechariah even says the Lord Jesus Christ will be in charge of building that new temple in this millennium at Jerusalem there. It will be the center of worship, the true worship of the Lord. Then finally, and I, these are not all the promises. I hope, I hope I've made that clear. There are many more promises in Zechariah than the ones that we've looked at. But I wanted to look at this last one here and use it as a transition. Zechariah 14, 17. It says, If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. And it uses an example. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. And it says the Lord will bring plagues on them and verse 19 will punish them if they don't obey, if they don't come regularly to worship and pay homage to God, to Jesus Christ. Because remember that verse in Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't mean they'll do it willingly. It means their knee will bow and they will be forced to acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Messiah. He does reign. But the hearts of people during the millennium will not be perfect. Sin will not be eradicated. In fact, it wouldn't be talking about punishment if it was incapable of sin happening. Because we know at the end of that millennium, Satan will be released and he will lead a rebellion. And the people of the earth who do not believe God, who are not true believers in Jesus Christ, will gladly join that rebellion and they'll be happy to try and throw off his yoke and overturn the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. Zechariah 14, along with several other passages, let me give them to you if you want to write them down or just make note. Isaiah 65, Psalm 72, and Revelation 20. These are some of the passages that make up the strongest case for a real thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, an intermediate period of a thousand years. And I wanted to, to just logically go through this with you. This is not today. Because there are blessings, there are landscape changes, there is a gathering in of the people that's not happening So we can eliminate, if we're looking at this, if you were just reading through Zechariah and said, okay, when is this going to happen? There's all these promises, but when are they going to occur? It's not today. It wasn't in Zechariah's day. It's not in our day either. And I wanted you to see that it's not heaven. And we're going to look in a minute here at some of the people who have some divergent views, some false views on this teaching. And they would often look at something like this and say, well, that's talking about heaven. You know, God, the, the new Jerusalem, heaven's called the new Jerusalem, and, and that's what it's going to be. This is just describing heaven one day. But is there going to be sin or punishment or rebellion in heaven? Absolutely not. So this time is descri- that is described is something that's not in, that, nothing that we have seen yet. And it is not heaven, the eternal final state. It's an intermediate period. And Revelation 20 tells us it's a thousand years when Jesus Christ will reign on earth. He'll reign over a mixture of believers and sinners. 
I wanted to look at one main issue, though. You, I, it's going to be pretty clear where I stand on this. But the issue, and, uh, and let, me not make, let me make this very clear. This is a huge issue in Christianity today. What to do with the millennium. What to do with all these promises, not just in Zechariah, but in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the prophets, all the Old Testament. What do we do with those promises for Israel? Because it's obvious that most of them have not been fulfilled yet. And there are many biblical pastors and scholars. Let me name a few. I'm not going to misrepresent their views. This is what they would proudly claim to be. R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, C.J. Mahaney, J. Adams, and many others. You say, well, I recognize some of those names. Those are good guys. I, I, I read their books. I, they're good scholars. They, they love the Lord. They do. But this is what they would say. They are what they would claim they are amillennialists. You heard the term? Amillennialists. It means there is no millennium. There is no thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. You may have heard that before. You may not have. But it is a very common, actually, in some ways, I would say it's almost the majority view these days. The amillennialist, godly, intelligent, gifted men are coming out and saying that Israel doesn't get these promises. They're not going to be literally fulfilled. There's not really going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And let me quote uh, a couple of them here. Lorraine Bettner says, God is done with the Jews. He is through with them as a unified national group, having anything more to do with the evangelization of the world. That mission has been taken from them and given to the Christian church. Bruce Waltke, some of you may know that name as well, another godly scholar, says, National Israel and its law have been permanently replaced by the church and the new covenant. What do you think about that? Let's be careful. These are very smart men. And let's not write them off as infidels. Let's not write them off as unbelievers. They're very serious about God's word. They love the Lord with all their hearts. I'm not making a blanket statement, but for these men, the fruit of their lives is obvious. But you can't believe that and believe that these promises in Zechariah are going to be actually fulfilled one day. And they have arguments, they have reasons, they even they have scripture that they say supports their arguments. And I wanted to have four points that they bring up. Let's look at them briefly. And the, kind of the heart of the matter is, should we read scriptural prophecy literally or symbolically? Now these men, they're not stupid. Remember I said they're godly men. They read most of scripture literally. They, the plain sense, what the text means. But when it comes to prophecy, particularly Old Testament prophecy, they look at that and say, well, this needs to be interpreted symbolically. Much of it, if not all of it. They say this needs to be, this is a metaphor. This, doesn't, this isn't going to be, occur literally. And the reason that they do that is because they say that the church is going to inherit those promises that were to Israel. But you and I, anybody can read Zechariah and say, there's no church in Zechariah. 
He's talking just about Israel in the future. So they take that symbolically, metaphorically. And this really is the heart of the matter. But the question I have is, how have God's prophecies been fulfilled? The ones that were fulfilled in the past. Were they fulfilled metaphorically? Or were they fulfilled literally? Did Jesus really die? Was he really born of a virgin? Or was it just symbolic? It's very dangerous when you do that. When you start saying, well, prophecy is symbolic. What about the prophecy that's already taken place? Furthermore, one of the things that the seminary really emphasizes, and I wholeheartedly agree with, is to find the author's original intention. What did the author mean when he wrote that? Did Zechariah mean to say that Israel wasn't actually going to get these promises? How encouraging would that have been to the people? I'm, I'm giving you great and glorious promises of a wonderful future when Jesus is going to reign on earth. You're going to be the exalted people of God again. But actually, it's not you. It's actually the, it's actually the church who you've never even heard of. It's actually Gentiles who are going to get this promise. Is that okay with you? just want to make sure. No. No, that's not what Zechariah intended to mean. Second, does the church become the new Israel? So the first was, do you take scriptural prophecy literally or symbolically? Second was, does the church become the new Israel? And I would say, flatly, no. The church can be sometimes described in terms that were also used to describe Israel, like in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But it doesn't mean that we get those promises for ourselves. We can't just rip these pages and say, ah, that's just for me. And unfortunately, we've had a history, a tendency to do that, is to say, if this people which is called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, Lord, that's America. Well, it's not. It was talking to Israel. (laughs) Ephesians 3, 4 through 6 says that the great mystery now revealed, Paul says, in that day, after Christ, is that the church can share in the redemption that Israel will also have as joint heirs. Joint heirs is a very key phrase because who are you joint heirs with if Israel's not on the picture anymore? Israel and church will together share in many blessings of the gospel. So third, do the descriptions of blessing under Christ's rule actually occur in heaven? I mentioned this already. Um, Some amillennialists will take these promises as being fulfilled in the church. Some of them will say, well, those are all going to happen in heaven. It's not, there's no millennium. Christ is ruling in our hearts now. He's not going to rule from Jerusalem. Those are all going to happen in heaven someday. And they would point to Revelation 21 that describes heaven. They would say, this is just the description that John used in Revelation 21 to build his picture of heaven. The problem is, Revelation 21 occurs immediately after Revelation 20. And many, many scholars are honest enough to say, that revelation and that section of revelation is chronological. It goes in order of the events that God wants to happen in the last days. So chronologically, Revelation 20, that has the millennium, heaven follows that. Fourthly, this is the last question. Is God done with Israel? I'm sure you can answer that question by now, but I wanted to read you a section of scripture from Jeremiah 31. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, 
who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord. Only, he says, if the decrees of the sun and the stars and the sea, as long as the sun is still shining and the sea is still pounding its surf against the ocean, against the the beach, only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. God is not done with his people Israel. He is a faithful, faithful God. He will keep those promises, even though they have been a faithless people. I'm not trying to be too hard on them because we are faithless people very often ourselves. Zechariah is not a book of the Bible that we can afford to ignore. Old Testament prophecy is not a genre that we can afford to ignore. There are hugely important themes running throughout this book that speak of Christ and his dominion and speak eventually of God's great plan for his people Israel. And I really wanted to encourage you as we close today. This is the gospel. Have you seen that in the last two weeks, I hope? This is the gospel. The mission of Christ. The glory of God. His undeserved mercy to sinners. His sovereign plan going forward. All that in Zechariah. And all those are components of the gospel that you and I can rejoice in. The promises of a book like Zechariah may not directly apply to us, but we can rejoice at the character of our Lord that is displayed in these pages. Our faithful God will keep his promises to us just like he will keep his promises to Israel. And as Peter said, we truly are now part of the redeemed people of God. May, the, may this encourage you. And may you be encouraged to read not only Zechariah, but other prophetic books that, yes, they take some thinking. You need to have a study Bible. You might need to get a commentary. But I pray that these books will encourage your heart as you see what God is doing. And he does not change. And he is always in control. And he loves his people and will protect them and provide salvation for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what would we do without you? Our lives would be so miserable, God, if, uh, if we were on our own. And I thank you so much for these promises. They show your tender care, your uh, amazing power, and the, the unmatched wisdom of your sovereign plan. Lord, may we bow the knee. May our hearts be softened as we see the great themes of the Messiah 
and of your plans for your people one day. And we rejoice to know that you will be faithful to us as well. Bless this week, Father. Help us to trust you and live lives that are pleasing in your sight. Live always in in light of the gospel that has bought us. An incredible price was paid for our lives, Lord. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.